Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 15th season showcasing stories from outstanding business people presented by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Sandrine Rastello, who's in for Mike Newton for the first couple episodes of the show. Sandrine, welcome to CJD and welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Glad you're here. Um, you're going to hear Sandrine's name a few times in the, the next couple of weeks here on the program. I have to take some time off, unfortunately. Um, Mike is on vacation now. I'll be taking a break in a little while, and so Sandrine will be in for me. Sandrine, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you work with uh, me and our colleagues now at TNKR Media. Um, I'm very proud to work with a, a number of former journalists, and in your case, uh, you have a background in business journalism, formerly from Bloomberg, and you, you covered Montreal, covered the tech scene and some of our interesting uh, new companies and startups here. Tell me about your, your journey over to business journalism um, from uh, where you were from in, in France. Ah, Jeff, 20, 20 minutes ahead of you. <laughs> no, I was a, a journalist with Bloomberg for, for 20 years, starting out in Paris. Uh, then I spent uh, some time in Washington, in Mumbai, and I moved to Montreal at the end of 2016. Over the years, I covered uh, many different things, macroeconomics, big summits, G7s and the likes. And um, that was also economics and government that I covered in India. When I moved to Montreal, I covered everything. <laughs> I felt I was a bit of a of a foreign correspondent uh, in Quebec. I covered companies. I covered Quebec politics, and uh, I also discovered the Quebec tech scene. And something you, you've used your experience in business reporting uh, to moderate some panels in town, and you've uh, you've had some discussions um, with Montreal's business community. Uh, tell me about uh, what you've done there. Yeah, so since I left uh, Bloomberg, I've actually had many activities. I still write stories. I just spend more time doing long long formats and I moderate conferences. I emcee some, I moderate panels, and it's just been super interesting. I did some on aluminum. Uh, sometimes it's more macroeconomics. I really love uh, the, this part. I, I do theater in life as a hobby, and it really, to, for me, combines the, the best of both worlds. Well, it's great to have you on the team, and we look forward to uh, to your insight uh, on Inspiring Entrepreneurs this season. We're going to be speaking with uh, the head of Safari Condo, which is the, the original Quebec van life company. I mean, they've been retrofitting campers for quite some time uh, for people who want to hit the road and, and take off. So Dominique Nadeau will be on the program today to kick off our season. And we will talk a little bit about tech and about how, how supply chain and sourcing is an issue for them. They are trying to electrify as well. I want to pick your brain a little bit more, Sandrine, on, on tech and your impressions of the tech community, especially coming from Mumbai, obviously a burgeoning tech scene in India. What was your impression of, of where we're at in terms of, of Montreal startup scene, which, which does get a lot of hype in, in media here? Yeah, that's quite interesting because when I arrived, it was not really on my radar. I, you know, I was asked to cover Quebec Inc., the traditional big Quebec companies, but uh, tech quickly erupted, uh, you know, uh, on my on my path because I was looking at hiring numbers and jobs numbers to write a story about uh, the Quebec economy revival, and that's it led me uh, to a tech company. That's where I went for my first anecdote of uh, you know a thriving work environment. And from there, I, you know, I suddenly there was an IPO and, and then another one. And uh, 
I got to discover how just how dynamic uh, it was and perhaps less spoken about than Toronto or, or even Vancouver. And, and, you know, let's not forget these are huge uh, hubs also in Canada. But uh, with the pandemic and people, companies in the U.S. being able to hire anyone anywhere really working from home, uh, I think also people in Quebec became in high demand. And that added quite a bit of tension, but that was also very interesting to see the different dynamics taking place. Let's dig into some current events issues, shall we, Sandrine? And this, of course, is something you've covered before uh, at Bloomberg and something that is a constant in business media right now. AI. And it all started, I think, a few months ago with the introduction of ChatGPT, um, how this is revolutionizing business communications. Uh, this story from CNN, uh, a warning that maybe we shouldn't automate everything with AI apps just yet. Newspaper chain has paused the use of an artificial intelligence to write high school reports, uh, dispatches from sports uh, events. After the tech uh, made several major flubs in articles, uh, the reports were mocked on social media for lacking key details, generally not seeming that they knew about sports very much and having weird technical um, problems there. So uh, I've said it for a while. I'm not sure how you feel. If you if you incorporate these tools in your everyday life, Sandrine, but if you use a chat GPT and other uh, tools to save you time or even write for you, you really have to edit it vigorously and certainly to fact check it vigorously. Fact check it for sure. And also check the tone, right? Because sometimes it can be very over the top, I've noticed. But yeah, in terms of accuracy, you know, uh, Bloomberg started using automation quite a few years ago. So I got to see how it can best be used. And this really works well for anything with numbers, anything where you don't require much style, anything where you require something quickly. Um, but what I noticed is, okay, you know, especially in, in a company like a newswire where people are really looking for these numbers, that's fine. Uh, but there should always be a human nearby, especially to avoid if, if you notice a mistake, which in financial news can be really serious. But also, um, we know that sometimes when companies have bad news to share, they try to bury it somewhere in their press release. And so, you know, as journalists, uh, it was very important also to, to read the whole thing and see where the news is. So I think that's, that's something, uh, to remember. But then maybe just another thing is, uh, you know, I think the story was talking about how poorly written that was. And I'm going to be a little cheeky here, but, you know, the chat GPTs of this world are looking into what's actually been published. So maybe it's also a good reminder for journalists, which I still am, by the way, I still write stories, to to really just avoid the cliches and, and to keep on improving our writing because, uh, you know, we have a responsibility in the fact also that... Uh, that AI uh, is is writing badly. It's because maybe the source was badly written. One principle that that, that we use at TNKR is uh, is called human in the loop, and I think that's really important because if you're not having a human reviewing all the activities, all the paragraphs, all the lists that you're generating with ChatGPT, you might as well hand it over, uh, you know, to a high school student or someone um, uh, less qualified. So it's really an argument um, for, if anything, uh, more supervision in some cases. Uh, you can't delegate everything to these tools, but that's not to say you can't delegate some stuff. I mean, there are some tools that are getting really refined, translation, transcription as well. So recording someone's voice like this and turning that into a transcription, that has saved uh, members of our team oof, countless hours, really, uh, over the last few years. So some are ready for prime time, but the generation of content um, and writing people and writing to people for people, that I think it requires a human touch. 
Absolutely. And, and and transcription in French, not quite there, at least not in my experience. Very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. We have had struggles with transcription in French. It's not perfect. It's a lot more difficult. There are some Montreal startups who are, who are working on that. And Montreal is an interesting place for that dynamic. I, I hope, Sandrine, that maybe there's a company out there um, that will take a, a French transcription to the next level, because it, it does seem that there are more products available in English for, for that kind of thing than, than there are in French now. Okay, up next, Sandrine, a popular topic when Mike is here, and we'll, we'll certainly bring it back when he returns, um, working hybrid or remote working. Now, Amazon, they're taking a bit of a militant stance on this. They say uh, their CEO telling employees to return to the office or their days may be numbered. Andy Jassy telling uh, the team that uh, their return to office plan requires them to uh, physically report to the office at least three days per week, which I think is pretty lenient. It's, it's a pretty good deal by most standards. Um, but according to uh, a statement, uh, they are going to get really severe for those that, that expect any more than that. Um, is hybrid work kind of the new norm, Sandrine? Um, and if, if Amazon is saying, well, three days a week in office is enough, I mean, that's, that's, still, that's still progress, I think, for a lot of workers who were demanding um, more time to themselves. I think it's definitely progress. I, I just question the tone. <laughs> I think the tone says a lot of the corporate culture of a place. And I think, you know, you, you could say it in a in a way that will bring everyone together and not threatening to, to fire people if they don't come. But uh, but yes, I think, uh, you know, we, we've realized uh, that not only does it make managers life more convenient to have their team and to be able to coordinate, but really... There might be people who will who really dislike being around other people, but one thing I noticed um, when I became sort of a solo worker, and that was before even uh, I, I chose to become an independent worker, was that I missed the camaraderie, and uh, it is something that I still miss today, uh, having people to talk to, uh, because it's hard to measure how it improves your morale, but having people you can bond over. Uh, you can bond with over tea or or coffee and discuss work uh it 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 contributes to to this feeling of of belonging to a place so yes i think uh, this hybrid thing is is here to stay at at least at least 3 days i know places that insist now on 4 days and and honestly it's going to be less of a nightmare also to coordinate which days people are in the office, because I think that's one of the problems some companies have been having is, uh, oh, if so-and-so come on Monday and so-and-so come on, on Wednesday, when are we ever meeting? So um, I, I think it's good. I think we're still in a labor shortage situation, though. So, you know, there's maybe other things you can offer employees to to uh, actually lure them and make them stay. And that could be, you know, how you how you organize your workflow and and the hours, and um, you know, maybe that will be the way both find some some uh, both feel that it's a compromise. This interesting note as well from Colliers, uh, they were studying sort of the, the where, where offices are going now, and and they report recently that half of Canadian employers have a finalized approach to their in-office remote work uh, balance. And they say the average number of days companies are mandating employees to work in the office uh, increased from 2.5 days in late 2022 to now now the full three days um, last quarter. So getting a little more severe and a little close to what normal was after the immediate effects of the pandemic have, have subsided a bit on business. 
last year I got one of these Facebook anniversary posts reminding me what I wrote a few years ago, <laughs> sometime in 2018, and it said, I wish I could work from home more often. <laughs> so yeah, wish, wish granted, you know, and I think we tend to forget that three days means two days working from home. It's pretty good. And certainly if you want to uh, extend your remote work uh, to a really interesting extreme, you can make it uh, remote and on the road. And some people do that. They get into their vans or their safari condos and they go out onto the road. It's an interesting subculture. And we'll touch on that subculture with our guest, Dominique Nadeau of Safari Condo, the CEO. It's a family business. And they found their niche um, 25 years ago before the hashtag van life thing uh, was uh, a reality. And we'll talk to Dominique Nadeau. Dominique, welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm really interested in this product. I've seen them on the road and, uh, you know, uh, I think I, I might want one one day, frankly. Tell me what briefly uh, is Safari Condo? Safari Condo, uh, we're a manufacturer of uh, compact uh, RVs for camping. Uh, so we actually have two main lines of products. So we make uh, small Class B motorhomes, uh, as well as uh, an all-aluminum caravan, uh, which is called the Alto. Well, that'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about the, the about the history of the company. Um, yeah, well, my father founded the company um, 25 years ago this year, so it's our 25th anniversary. And uh, Safari Condo started like a lot of uh, businesses, and it basically from a personal need. So when I grew up, my my dad, my parents owned a Volkswagen Westphalia, um, so the the kind of the hippie looking buses uh, for camping. And uh, they really loved it, but didn't love, uh, my father didn't love the mechanics so much, uh, had a lot of mechanical issues over the years. Uh, and they, so they kept it for a long time. And eventually my my dad said, that's enough. I put so much money into that van. So he sold it. And then we had a tent trailer and then we had a big class C, uh, but they always came back to the idea of having something small, something that could go anywhere, park anywhere. And, and that was very versatile. Um, but he still didn't love the mechanics of these old VW buses uh, and uh, decided to make his own. So he, he built his own um, small compact van uh, that you could camp in and live in. Uh, and uh, he made it on, um, initially it was a GMC Safari, hence the Safari condo part. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, it started like that. His business plan was to make 15 just to pay for the mold for the fiberglass roof. And uh, in the first year, I believe he sold 38. So it uh, it kind of took off really quickly. Tell me about your entry into the business. We were initially kind of two me and a colleague of mine, the same age, uh, we started in the business about the same time. And in 2012, we'd been uh, with Safari Condo for about six years, I guess. Uh, and uh, and then we had an opportunity to become um, small shareholders in the in the company, and we were interested. So so my dad gave us uh, my my dad and my uncle and my aunt, which were the original shareholders, gave us a. Uh, a little bit of room to, and then more responsibility and, and so on. So, uh, and it, initially when I became a shareholder and, and it, I wanted to take over the business one day, I had told Fred, my associate, that in my mind, it was always going to be a business where we're going to be a team. So I never wanted to be on my own or just two people. My father always was very much about, he said, it's always better to have success as a team. And also it's it's better when the times are harder to have a team with lots of ideas and, and kind of tackle those challenges together. Um, so that's what we did. We we had other young people uh, come in in the last five years 
And uh, and now this year, we actually bought back the business from my dad and, and my uncle and my aunt. And uh, so now we're, uh, yeah, we're seven and uh, shareholders all together. Um, basically, most of my management team is now also owner of the business. And uh, we're really happy. I don't know, we see a really bright future. <laughs> Congratulations on completing that. Uh, was it always obvious to you that you were going to be part of the family business? It's, it's so difficult for many founders now to to know what to do when they're about to retire. Uh, no, it wasn't uh, always obvious. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur, which is which is why it's always kind of um, surprising to me when I get to talk about entrepreneurship. Um, but I, I really think over the years, I realized there's just different kinds of entrepreneurs. Um, and I have to give credit to my father. I don't think I would have been the person who would have started a business from nothing. So I think my dad created a business and started from scratch. And I'm not sure I would have had his talent or, or his tenacity to, to get that going. However, I think um, once I came into the business, uh, I studied English Lit. I, so like clearly I wasn't meant, <laughs> I didn't see myself in business initially. But once I came in, I came in in sales for, for English speaking provinces. Uh, and I kind of fell in love with the business and how diverse it is to be in a small business. And uh, and I, I made my place over the years. But uh, and and I found that I had different talents from my father. So even though I couldn't have started it from nothing, um, I managed to uh, make it grow into something bigger and and diversify it and different markets. And so I had other kinds of talents. And uh, so that's what we try to do with our our new management team. We have very different personalities and and different skills. I think that we kind of all bring with a similar vision of where we want to go in the next five or ten years. Dominique Nadeau is with us from Safari Condo. Um, speak to us about your current product line and, and where it's going. I see there are some sprinters there. So you have some some fancier models, uh, certainly, than you did uh, when, when you started out. Oh, yes. I, I think we have to keep up uh, with, with our customers. We're very close. We sell direct to consumers. Uh, we do have dealers in other provinces, uh, but we've, we've kept very close to our customer base, uh, which means that we... We have we, we try to have big ears and, and really be in touch with what they want, what they're looking for. Uh, and so the, the product has evolved. People want uh, more comfort. Um, and and uh, we've always had a little bit of a European streak. But uh, when the uh, sprinters came in, you could see the more European looking vans becoming more and more popular. Uh, so so we, we moved in that direction progressively more and more. Um, we uh, I mean, with the Alto, which is our aluminum trailer, we really wanted to offer an alternative to people who did not want to buy a full size pickup. Uh, for the occasional, you know, weekend getaway uh, with their their caravan or their trailer, uh, we thought, well, you know, if you have a Subaru Outback, uh, it's cheaper every day to go to work and to go do groceries. Uh, but at the same time, if you were able to tow your trailer, then it could kind of do all of it. Uh, and so that was the idea. And again, that product has evolved too. Uh, we had a customer who bought an electric car and asked us to improve the aerodynamics of our product. And actually, instead of doing incrementally, we ended up designing a whole new trailer specifically for that customer because we thought there was a potential in the future for more sales with electric cars. And now we have the most aerodynamic um, caravan in North America. Um, and we do sell quite a few to to different uh, customers owning, whether it's a Tesla X or Y or or even a, now a Ford Lightning. We see a few of those. So, yeah. 
And you mentioned earlier the different market English speaking Canada. Where are your customers today? Uh, every anywhere there's a white space and lots of nature. Yes. Uh, well, we I mean officially we sell. Uh, we have um, dealerships outside of Quebec are in Ontario, uh, British Columbia, uh, but we do sell from Quebec. About forty percent of our caravans are sold to the U.S. and they all come in Quebec to pick them up. So we actually have a significant, well, a significant. The U.S. market is very, very big, but for us, it is a significant part of our sales, which goes to the U.S. and all our American customers are passionate about, enough about our product that they drive up from California or Michigan and come and pick it up here. Um, and so that market has uh, has has grown quite a bit in the last, um, I would say, about 10 years. So we started about 10 years ago in the U.S. For a while, we also sold in Australia. So we, we shipped our caravans by container and we had a distributor uh, in Australia. Um, but uh, about after seven years. Uh, unfortunately, um, we had to part ways, but but it was a it was an interesting adventure just building the caravans the other way around because they drive on the other side. So everything had to be like a mirror of our North American version. We learned a lot. So that was a good experience anyway. Dominique, I think it's so interesting that customers are traveling such great distances uh, to to pick up your product from the United States. What's going on there? I mean, what what's why is it a cultural thing? Uh, what is it design? What are you guys doing so differently that is is uh, leading to this fandom? Uh, well, I think we have a pretty unique product. Uh, the, the 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 original Alto is a, actually a retractable roof uh, teardrop trailer. Uh, and our design is it is unique. So I mean, we have we have had interest from, you know, um, South Korea and and all over Europe. And so it is very distinctive looking and there are no real alternatives in the U.S. market at the moment. So somebody who kind of falls in love with the Alto doesn't really have much options in the U.S. market. So that's why they're willing to come all the way to Quebec to, to buy it. Um, the other thing I think that distinguishes us from uh, a lot of the uh, the American RVs um, is that we are, you know, being in Quebec, I think we have a European sensibility. Uh, so our design, the products that we use, the suppliers that we use in our caravans are are very, um, very much European. So we um, so we have a design and appliances that are German made or, or from the Netherlands. And, and that brings a quality to the product, uh, but also um, something that they can't necessarily find in, in other manufacturers. Um, and then, as I was saying, just the fact that we're very, very light. So we're amongst the, the best at being very light, very aerodynamic. So again, someone looking for something to tow and they don't want to change their car. Um, we're one of the few companies that offers some really comfortable um, yet uh, very light vehicles. So light, stylish, aerodynamic. We'll, we'll talk about social media in a little while, but I want to talk tech now, Sandrine, and, and uh, especially the electrification uh, of our network and, and how that's going to impact uh, companies like Safari Condo. Yeah, I've been really curious to see where you fit in this uh, EV push, you know, that we're seeing from the governments. I know the company has always been very, uh, you know, interested in uh, increasing the autonomy of the vehicles and letting people out in the wild as long as they can. Now, how are you, are you coping? How are you adjusting to this new demand for electric vehicles? 
I think we try, uh, of course, we're a small business. Um, so we, we try to be, uh, creative within our means, I guess. Um, so, so we, we see some of our competitors, you know, the, the biggest manufacturer in the U.S. is, is doing some, some very high tech things. Uh, but I think we're doing very well. Uh, I mean, we, as I said, listen and try to be close to our customers. And one of our customers who owned an Alto, move to an electric car and um and then when you're moving on to electric aerodynamics is the name of the game so obviously the weight is not so much the the the, the most important factor it really is aerodynamics um and so when we started talking with him and with his about his needs we realized our lineup was good we were actually doing a lot better than most um most travel trailers in north america already but we could do uh, so much more and so we actually did uh wind tunnel testing on 11 different versions of the same trailer to fine tune it to what we finally ended up with uh and which is the most aerodynamic and one of the lightest uh, caravans in in north america um and actually does uh, significantly better than his old one for a large unit so he he does more mileage with his tesla than when he had a trailer that was four feet shorter uh, from us uh, so so we've improved his autonomy and that's what we're working on we're working on options to even retrofit uh improvements um to to existing trailers in our fleet because we do have uh over you know 2500 autos on the road and so we want to be able to provide and improve even the perf- the performance of these altos. So we really want to be offering solutions to people that are moving to electric cars and be one of the companies that's forward thinking enough to provide those solutions. Um, as far as the vans are concerned, it's it's a little more uh, of a process. Um, it's it's a lot of. First of all, it's a big investment in terms of R&D, and we are very much dependent on the van manufacturers. Uh, so we do get a lot of questions, and we and I personally answer most of them because I, I do want people to know that it is important to us. So, uh, but right now, you know, the Ford Transit, you know, came out with something that had 200 kilometers of autonomy, uh, which is great if you're a plumber and you're fixing, you know, within the city and, and you're kind of driving close. Uh, but when your target is to get to Alaska, 200 kilometers is it's a long drive and you have to stop a lot. Um, so we didn't think it was well adapted and it's going to be an expensive vehicle in the end. So we want something that's well adapted to the actual need of our community and our owners. Um, now we are uh, very interested in the Sprinter, the Sprinter, the electric Sprinter, which is coming out, I believe, at, before the end of this year. We actually we're hoping to get two. We still haven't heard, but we were hoping to get two of them. Uh, and the Sprinter is going to get about 400 to 450 kilometers per charge. Uh, so that's starting to get a lot more interesting to, to try to travel with and, and, and do some trips. Uh, and so we're looking at that. And hopefully if we get those two, we want to really try to see how we adapt our conversion uh, to, to the, the, uh, an electric vehicle. Obviously, the battery is going to be in the floor. So the tanks that are usually underneath the van might have to be adapted, which is why we anticipate there's going to be a lot of R and D investment around the vans. As you're implying, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're referring to, to supply chain woes there. I mean, you'd like to, to purchase more electric sprinters if you could. Can you tell me, um, how your pandemic has been and, and what kind of issues you've had with supply chain and how you've overcome them? Oh, um, well, we had to be, uh, yeah, we, I think resilience was the word used in the pandemic. 
for everyone. And I think it was the same thing within our business. Um, so we uh, we had to be resilient. We had to find um, alternative suppliers to alternative suppliers. So it was really, uh, you know, there were things where we changed the same sink four times within a year or three times within the same year for three different models because, at, you know, we, we were always running out. Um, so for the last two years, it's really been a, a challenge to get the parts we need for production, for sure. At one point, we had about four months of production in our yard um, built, but not finished. So there were components missing. There were things so we couldn't deliver. Um, and and within that within itself is, is kind of hard on productivity and just getting all those trailers back into the, the factory to finish them off once the parts came in uh, kind of set us back uh, a little bit in terms of productivity, but it's going better. So it is improving. We also found alternate suppliers for a lot of things that we didn't have before. So I think we're coming out in the end in a better position than we were before the pandemic. Um, and then one of the other things that was quite a a bit of a challenge, uh, less for the Alto, but it is really the supply for the vans themselves. So um, we're working with three manufacturers. Um, so we're working with uh, Ram, uh, Mercedes and Ford, um, but, you know, each in their different ways, but each had their struggle with production, part supply. Uh, we've heard a lot about electronic components that were a problem in many um, car manufacturers. It was the same thing for the vans. Uh, so, so at one point, one or the other, uh, for the last two years, we would get maybe fifty percent of the vans we ordered, uh, and and so that was uh, that was a bit difficult. And so we're still working on that. In some in some cases, we we're still not back to our full supply of vans. Uh, but again, I see improvements. Just you know, in their case, just as in ours, I think uh, their supply chain is is getting better slowly. Because clearly demand is there, excitement is there, and part of that uh, can be seen in those uh, that that sense of community that uh, you've been trying uh, to nurture for for many years. I've been particularly intrigued about these yearly gatherings you're organizing. What do you do there? Who comes? Are are those American clients you were mentioning earlier? Are they coming too? And what do you all do there? Uh, yeah, the gatherings, um, the gatherings are actually pretty much 25 years old. My mother organized the first one uh, in 1998, I believe, uh, or 1999. And uh, and so we've been doing them every year, except during the pandemic. Uh, and we restarted again this year. Um, and the, the gathering is really for, for all of our customers. Um, I would say that our American customers typically organize their own. So they've actually thought the idea was neat, um, but thought that they came to pick up their Alto in Quebec once. They don't necessarily want to come back every year. Uh, and so they do their own. So they actually now have um, Alto gatherings and they organize like Facebook groups and then uh, they will do them in different regions. So there's like the East Coast and then the West Coast and then the Southern United States. And so they'll do maybe four or five a year in different locations. And depending on where our customers are located, they might go just to one or two. Um, and uh, and then the ones in Quebec, well, we have some Americans that come, but typically for anniversaries. So in 2018, um, it was our, our 20th anniversary. And then we had uh, quite a few Americans that came to that one. And this year, again, it was our 25th anniversary. And at our gathering, um, we had 235 vehicles, um, uh, travel trailers and 
motorhomes altogether. And I would say probably 35 or 40 Americans out of the out of the number. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, there were some struggles during the pandemic, as I think a lot of uh, vehicle manufacturers had, uh, but you also were, were fueled by this cultural bump, in a sense, this popularization of so-called van life, the social media groups that you're talking about, the cult following that you've developed. Uh, have you noticed the culture uh, improving in recent years, especially uh, with, uh, with the popularity of, of social media? Well, I think so. I think, uh, I mean... We can see it. We've been, we started our business with the class B campers. And that is, you know, in North America, the, the, the travel trailer part of the industry is almost 80% of all sales of RVs. And then the motorhome is about 20%, maybe a little more. Um, and then within that 20%, the class B was the smallest sub segment. So it was always a very niche market. Um, and the last five years, it's been the highest growth market in all of the RV industry. So the class B with the van life movement has really exploded. Um, and in our case, it's been really good. I think uh, because we have a history, we, we've been there for 25 years in Quebec. We're, we're quite well known, I think, for those in the camping community, I guess. But but we, we do have a, re- a good reputation. But at, at the same time, we have a two year waiting list. So, I mean, we, we you know, our customers order now for 2025. Uh, and so uh, where we can't meet the demand because we can't get vans or enough vans or, or because our production is limited just physically from our buildings and our capacity to grow, um, then, then you know, there's new there's new competitors coming into the market as well, which is not bad. It gets, brings new ideas. And we just want to make sure we're still um, I think we we want to make sure we're still the innovator in the game, and we we want to stay ahead of that. Uh, but yeah, definitely the uh, the the social media aspect of it has been really important, has given us a lot of visibility, and uh, and has made our our market grow. And just continuing a little bit for our podcast, Dominique, if that's okay, because we have some extra time online and some extra questions we'd like to to ask you. Uh, let's start uh, a little bit more. I, I was curious just about the, the social media following and uh, perhaps um, rising interest rates, have a higher cost of housing, people ha- also having trouble finding housing in the city. Do you find a lot of your clients are people who would have otherwise owned homes or owned larger homes and are now incorporating van life into their into their routine? Uh, yeah, I, I think especially for the younger generation, we've been We've been working with uh, a social media influencer, Govan. Uh, his name is Julien, um, now for almost eight years. And we started with him because even at, you know, even eight years ago, I could see that, you know, baby boomers were a huge part of our clientele, but there's, there's going to be an end to that eventually. Uh, and, and we wanted to make sure that we were a company that spoke to the, the the generations coming after and and the future campers that maybe right now didn't have you know the, the money or were buying used but one day are going to look at new and so we we started working with them eight years ago uh, to to make sure that people saw us as relevant no matter what age they were in and so the uh, the visibility through social media the communities uh, it's been really really important for us to to allow us to grow the business uh, even just our U.S. market. The Alto is, we don't have dealers, we don't do shows, we don't advertise, we have no service centers. The only reason we sell 40% of our caravans in the US is because of, you know, 
Facebook groups, basically. So our alto is very distinctive. And then people see our little snail on a campground on a trailer and they, you, you, they literally Google like snail caravan. <laughs> and, and then, you know, we come up and they look on our website and then they start to do a bit of research and they end up on our Facebook group. Well, I say ours, but it's not ours. It's our customers Facebook group. And, and we have very passionate customers that actually help us sell. And, and uh, so they love our product. And even though it's expensive, they're happy with their purchase. And that's kind of what they share um, with would-be buyers that are thinking about it and wondering if it's worth it. And, and so, yeah, we, we, we really appreciate the fact and we fully understand that a lot of our sales is thanks to um, those communities. Just curious, because during the pandemic, we saw a lot of uh, new profiles of customers and you touched on that uh, you know with younger people I was just curious about the men to women ratio because I know in recreational vehicles for instance we started seeing more more female customers is is there something like this happening for you too uh yes yes we I mean we have a very different profile in general I mean even our dealers uh, tell us that customers that come for our safari condo vans or our altos are, are quite typically a little different from the typical RV buyer. Um, we have a lot of first-time buyers, so people that go straight from a tent to this is their first caravan or is this is their first motorhome. Uh, so we do have a lot of first-time buyers. We have a lot of uh, women buyers and women who who travel on their own. So we have a lot of women, uh, especially with our Alto caravans, and they're you know, and some of them are full-time. So they have no condo, no house, and they, they live full time. And so, so I, I was very surprised, but we have a lot of women uh, that travel solo and, and go all around North America, Mexico, uh, and which is which is really fun. Tell me about your uh, your favorite trip in a safari condo. Oh, um, well, I mean, um, unfortunately, right now I don't take I, you know, I have my bucket list and but unfortunately, all the bucket list items are on the West Coast and I don't have a long vacation. So I do take a few weeks here and there, but typically never more than three. Uh, so right now I'm more of an East Coast bound girl. So <laughs> I um, but my favorite vacation, uh, I have to say, is really right now um, Bar Harbor, Maine. So uh It's, you know, with Acadia National Park, it's pretty close, which means we can really spend most of our time, not necessarily on the road, but actually there and enjoying, you know, the, the biking, the hiking. And, and so we do love to be outdoors. And so Bar Harbor is, uh, and it's a destination where we've gone for as little as three days. And, um, but we've also once taken a whole vacation and, and gone there. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of a, I guess my my favorite, uh, but but we've done you know most of the East Coast. Uh, Cape Cod is also a good one, but uh, but Bar Harbor we come back to every other you know every other year or so. Well, Dominique Nadeau, thanks so much. That'll wrap it up. Uh, you're going to hang around for your one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs, please. Uh, but thanks so much for your time. Let's get to our expert uh, and occasional co-host, Eros Malekic, partner of business services at BDO Canada. Eros will actually be here co-hosting with me next week on the program. Euros, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Dan. So in corporation, um, let's go through the basics. First, how is income taxed when you incorporate your business? Just give us a quick basic rundown there, please. Okay, so I'll try to keep it as simple as I can here. Um, when you're an incorporated business as an associated group in Quebec, of course, we're talking, uh, if you meet the criteria that the government has or, and you get the small business deduction, 
there's certain rates uh, of tax that you get to uh, to pay. Now I'm making it seem like it's a it's a pleasure, but the the rates are uh, basically nine percent federally for the first five hundred thousand of taxable income, which is shared amongst an associated group. So if you have different companies uh, within the same ownership, so 9% federally and 3.2 provincially in the province of Quebec. So we're talking about a total of 12.2%. Now, to get that small business rate that I just mentioned for Quebec, uh, you know, you have to meet other criteria. You have to make sure you have employees, uh, remunerated hours of at least 5,500 uh, hours uh, in a given year. And the CRA also has a, has another rule in place that if you uh, if you have passive income, which is investment type type income in a in an active uh, in a corporation uh, that's over a fifty thousand dollar limit, you start you start grinding down on that small business deduction uh, um, threshold. So in, in essence, assuming you meet all this uh, criteria. So in this example, let's assume you meet that, and your associated group has five hundred thousand of net taxable income as an active business and not passive income this will equate to $61,000 which is the 12.2% that i was referring to after that point it's 15% federal and 11.5% quebec so we're 26.5% in total so it's almost double uh afterwards but when you compare this then to tax rates for an individual so let's say you're not an incorporated business and and you have a sole proprietorship uh your taxation system i guess is different uh in the sense that you follow the graduated rate system that an individual uh would follow same as an individual receiving a you know a, a t4 relevé uh, 1 and in quebec th that those brackets range from 15 to 25.75% uh, and on the combined fed with a combined federal rate, we're talking about uh, 27.53% all the way to 53.31%. When you're in that high income uh, bracket, you're paying over 50% if you're not an incorporated business. So this is a discussion that you should have with your professional advisors to see, uh, you know, if you're making a certain amount of revenues and, and you have a certain amount of net income, does it make sense uh, for you from an accounting tax standpoint uh, to be able to defer part of that income tax and incorporate your business. Now, it doesn't mean that once you take that money out, you're going to get taxed at the personal level. So there's strategies that could be put in place there. Uh, but but there's a deferral of tax aspect when you incorporate your business. The other thing that's extremely important to consider is the legal aspect of whether you should incorporate your business or not. Several businesses also have investments. Um, how is that income taxed differently once incorporated? So investments uh, are taxed as, as passive income. So if you have investments, like I said, in your operating company, uh, you need to be careful in terms of what, uh, you know, if, even if it's a, not in your operating company, if you have a passive income, you could start grinding down on that small business rate uh, that I mentioned. So it can actually impact uh, the, the tax rate that's in effect for your active business income as well. But itself the passive income is taxed closer to 50 percent if you want to kind of round it uh so it's not taxed the same way it's taxed more similarly to how it would be taxed uh, if you were in the high brackets uh individually so uh, what you, there are certain mechanisms and i won't dive into the details there because it can get complicated uh, perhaps uh but there are certain uh refundable dividend tax on hand it's a concept that when you pay a taxable dividend to the shareholder you know, you can get part of the taxes back as a dividend refund, and that overall uh, lowers the, the amount of net tax that you pay. 
but uh, big picture, without this mechanism, we're talking about closer to 50% uh, from, from a corporate standpoint. Uh, again, there's other strategies in there, capital dividend account elections that allows you to pay tax-free dividends to shareholders potentially should you have the room. Bottom line then, I think it's something that you need to discuss again with your professional advisor, see if it makes sense to you. I would say the cookie cutter approach is not one I ever recommend. Thanks very much. Yours Malikic, Partner Business Services at BDO Canada. And as we come to the end of the show, let's ask our entrepreneur, Dominique Nadeau, CEO of Safari Condo, for her one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Dominique. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. And it's the one thing I, I realized with time. And I think that's the one piece of advice I would give to pretty much anyone is that there's just so many kinds of entrepreneurs. And and if you're not the one like me, who's going to start a business from scratch, there's there's plenty of businesses that need uh, young people to take them over and, and bring them to, you know, forward in the next 20, 25 years or 30 years. So I think it's just to to be true to who you are. Um, authentic, uh, you know, authenticity is important. Uh, and I think that's with authenticity, that's how you attract the team that you need. So you can't have all the talents. I, I certainly didn't. Um, but then I surrounded myself with a team that really kind of clicks with me and they have the talents that I don't. Uh, and then it's just, it's so much fun every day. So I really think uh, it's just to accept the fact that you might be an entrepreneur and you don't quite know what type you are, but then just be yourself and, and find the right people and then have fun doing what you love. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, Dominique Nadeau, CEO of Safari Condo. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Sandrine, quick takeaway from our conversation today. Well, I think uh, you've really succeeded as a brand when your customers organize their own gatherings and <laughs> are ready to drive up from the U.S. to pick up, uh, you know, their their purchase. I think it's saying a lot. Absolutely. An incredible, uh, profound cultural statement there made for the fans uh, online of Safari Condo. And speaking of companies with a bit of a cult following, we'll be speaking next time with Laura Boivin, CEO of Grizzly Fumoir. This is a smokehouse based in Quebec City that is one of the top five producers of smoked and ready-to-eat fish in Canada. If you can find it at your grocery store, we'll get the behind-the-scenes story uh, from Grizzly. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite platform. You can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles from the last 15 years. Thanks, Sandrine. We'll see you back here next week. Good talk.